more there. Technology failed me this morning. I was actually wanting to shock you a little bit uh, and play a little clip of a song. And it worked in my office, it worked at home, but when I brought it out here, it didn't work. And I'm glad I previewed it before service today to find out. But that's okay. When all else fails, you draw back and punt, right? But let me ask you, here's the question. Do you know what song has been used in more commercials than any other? It's going to shock you. It shocked me. The song that has been used in more commercials than any other. If you're familiar with the song, uh, it might be due to the fact that it appeared in both Verizon and competitor T-Mobile, both five years apart. Verizon used it back in 2015. T-Mobile just used it in 2020. It was also featured with Chase credit cards, Circuit City, Dr. Pepper, Twix, Value City Furniture, or how about the Tudors television show? I didn't even know there was such a show. Uh, season 3 in 2009. And most recently, Grubhub. What is it about this song that made it a sure thing in the minds of advertisers and promoters for right at two decades. 20 years. It's not Bohemian Rhapsody, but it is a song by Queen. I want it now. I want it all. I mean, I want it all. I want it all and I want it now. Now, the subject, obviously, is indulgence. Obsessive-compulsive kind of indulgence. I mean, could it be that the, the lyrics captured a desire of many people in our world today and, and promoters and advertisers realize that? Whether it's the things that they could buy at Circuit City or Value City uh, or the need to to have it and use your Chase credit card or, or what you would consume in terms of Twix candy bars and Dr. Pepper and just about anything else if you chose Grubhub. You see, the song expresses a very important need that is manifest across the broad spectrum in terms of age, occupation, and social standing. We are living at a time like no other when people want it all and they want it now. But you want to hear a sad ending? 
The song first played live 30 years ago this past Wednesday on April the 20th. That's how all of this came to me and my attention. 1992, April the 20th. Three years after it was released. But Freddie Mercury, the lead singer on the song when it was released three years earlier, was not alive to perform it on April the 20th of 1992. He died because of the results of an indulgent lifestyle. So, let me ask you, Because sometimes sometimes there are things that we don't stop to think about. You know, don't you, that there's even something that the Bible says God desires. Omnipotent, all-powerful. Omniscient, all-knowing. All-loving God has something that He desires that He's not going to be able to enjoy. So let me ask you a question, for starters. Can we know the will of God? And, and if we can know the will of God, how? Can we know the will of God? I have people all the time say, oh, I just wish I knew what God's will was. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Say, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, listen, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What's Paul saying in Romans 12, 1 and 2? He's saying we can know the will of God and the way we know the will of God is by knowing the Word of God. Being students of God's Word. The renewal of our minds. But then also, what Alexander Campbell said way back in the early 1800s, coming within distance of the Word. Not just hearing it, but allowing it to transform our lives and living by what the Word says. Coming within hearing distance of the Word of God. You see, there's a lot of people that know all about God, but they don't know God. I, I shared with you, my new friend knows more about the New Testament than I do. She really does. But she has not stopped to accept Jesus Christ as her personal Lord and Savior. She talks about Him as one of the greatest 
teachers that ever lived. And said that if people would live by the teachings of Jesus, the world would be a much better place. But she hasn't accepted Him as her Lord and Savior. And from what the Scriptures say, the demons know who Jesus is, but they don't worship Him. And so they're lost. By correctly living as a living sacrifice, by living a transformed life, and by knowing God's Word, by the renewal of your mind, you can discern what is the will of God. So here's the second part of the question. Think about it. Since God is all loving, it shouldn't surprise you to know that the Bible says that God desires that all people will be saved. Paul writes to Timothy, we looked at this on Wednesday night several weeks ago. This is good and it ple is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you see that? God's Word. God wants all people to be saved. God wants all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. And I know that there are some people that believe that eventually everyone will come to know and love God and they're called universalists. That everybody's going to be saved in the end. I don't see that in God's Word. I don't see that in the teaching of Jesus. Jesus says there's going to be a divide. The sheep and the goats. And the goats will be told, Depart from Me for I never knew you. But listen to me. God would not be God if He in His position was consumptive, compulsive, and indulgent. The way we see in the lyrics, I want it all, I want it all, I want it all, and I want it now. And that brings me to our text for today. There are some that see Zechariah 12 verses 1 to 9 as dealing with Judgment Day. For example, in Zechariah 12 verse 3, verse 4, verse 6, verse 8, and verse 9, there is a reference to things that will take place on that day. But on what day? The message is actually pretty clear, I think. It's the day that God is going to draw near. But what is He talking about? The best way to understand texts that are hard to understand is by looking at texts that are a little easier to understand that use the same phrase. And the statement is found in the prophetic writings such as Isaiah 13, Ezekiel 30, Joel, Obadiah 1, and even later in Zephaniah 1.14. And you need to hear this and take it to heart. In each of those cases, the passages describe the imminence, the distress, 
and the wrath associated with a day described as a day of God. And in general, the day of God is understood as an occasion for God's intervention in human affairs to judge the nations, especially those who are enemies of the Israelites and to restore the faithful among the covenant people. Amos, Zephaniah, they turn the concept against Judah and Jerusalem by announcing that God's judgment is going to come against Judah because Judah has assimilated the pagan worship and has rejected God. And God keeps offering hope through the prophets and not just a message of doom and despair. And as we begin to get to our text for today, the verse that keeps speaking to me is verse 10 of chapter 12. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, who's talking? God. When they look on me, on Him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for Him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over Him as one who weeps over a firstborn. When they look on me, on Him, Uh, do we normally have a grammar problem in that sentence? We, we don't refer to me and then him. We usually don't refer to ourselves in the third person. Correct? And I think in order to understand a passage like this, it's very important not to look past the original setting. In this verse, God promises to pour out on the people a spirit of grace, supplication or pleas, and the action does result in their repentance, which we see in the last 10 to 14 of chapter 12. And then they're cleansing in chapter 13, verse 1. But these verses stand in sharp contrast with what you'll read if you go back and look at the first nine verses of chapter 12. The jubilation of victory is now tempered by mourning. Mourning for one who has been killed in the city. Now various attempts have been made to identify the one who's pierced. Some have pointed to the shepherd that struck in chapter 13, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, the slain king Josiah of Judah in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. And I am sure that one of these is true because otherwise the prophecy would have made no sense to the people that it was being given to. We cannot understand prophetic writings by looking into the future thousands of years ahead. They might also apply there 
But we have to understand what was the original setting, the original context, how would those people have understood what Zechariah was saying. I believe it had to do with, in fact, the slaying of King Josiah in the context, the historical context. However, look at with me for a moment at John chapter 19, verse 37. And I'm actually going to start because verse 40, 34, I'm not going to read it, but in verse 34, John writes about when the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, blood and water came flowing out. Fountain description. And then in verse 35, he goes on to confirm his testimony. He who saw it, in other words, I saw it, I bore witness to it, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. He knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Listen. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. John explicitly identifies Jesus as the one pierced in Zechariah 12.10. For John, it's a vision of the cross. And the text in John contains several contextual similarities with Zechariah 12, verse 10. Namely, the pouring out of the Spirit, the fountain language. The looking. The piercing. And even the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Nonetheless, Zechariah doesn't identify clearly the pierced one. Uh, and so, as we look again though, yes, the translation that I'm using says, when they look on me, on Him whom they have pierced. So context. Context. So important. Four verses ahead, four verses afterwards. And the context indicates that the pierced one is God. However, it is God in His three persons already being identified. God on me, Him on the Son. God the Father, God the Son. Uh, and notice also that the piercing of God results in the mourning of those who view the one pierced. Verses 10 and 11. Three similes show the, the severity of their mourning. We, we understand the first two as one mourns for an only child. And as one grieves for a firstborn son. By the way, does it help you to know that the only two individuals in the Old Testament who are identified explicitly as only children are Isaac in Genesis 22 and Jephthah's daughter 
in Judges 11. And what do they both have in common? Both of them are in the context of intended sacrifice. Isaac is taken up on the mountain as the only son of Abraham and Sarah to do what? To sacrifice him. And Jephthah's daughter, tragic, horrible story, is in fact executed, sacrificed in the Old Testament. Not only that, the Hebrew term translated firstborn, usually translated in the Greek Old Testament, uh, the Septuagint, by a word protakos. That word takes on very important messianic overtones in the New Testament, since in Luke chapter 2, Romans chapter 8, Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, and Hebrews chapter 12, all of the times that protakos is used, it's in reference to Jesus. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus is referred to as Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the protakos, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. You see, the apostles and the early Christians saw our text for today, Zechariah, as a vision of the cross. But notice what comes next. Verses 11 to 14 show us rather clearly, I think, the consequences of idolatry. They talk about death and mourning. In fact, verse 11 reveals the depth of the mourning that will take place and the greatness of the mourning is made evident in that it's compared with the greatest display of grief in the recorded Old Testament. And this is why I said I think it has to do with King Josiah. When Josiah died in battle from wounds he received in a battle with Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, near the fortified city of Megiddo, which is right there in those verses, 11 to 14, 609 B.C. When Josiah died, it says all of Judah and Jerusalem mourned for him. He was the last righteous king of Judah. Jesse and I have just been reading through, uh, we just read Esther now, but we, we just finished Chronicles. And, and to hear... Well, he was a good king, but he didn't do this. And then he was an evil king in, in the ways of his father. And then he was a good king, but he didn't do this. They, they weren't taking away the high places so that people were still worshiping not just God, but the pagans too. Idolatry. And Josiah did away with even the high places. But when he died, the, the death of Judah was pretty much, its doom was practically sealed. And it involved a bitter loss of hope as the last reforming king of Judah was taken from them. The extent 
of the distress that's brought out in verses 12 to 14. Verse 12 begins with a report of serious mourners all across the land, not just the capital, and a list of those demonstrating deep repentance, family by family or clan by clan. They grieve with conviction, so immense. And the call is for everybody to do some heart searching. Verse 14 says that the, the morning was national as well as individual. A deep time, a time of, excuse me, of deep and authentic repentance like that had not been encountered before. You recall what they did? They went and found the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they read it. And they wept because they had not been obedient. So we come to chapter 3 and verses 1 to 6. It indicts both royal and prophetic leadership in this post-exile time as they had returned from, from exile. But, it, but notice also that the focus is primarily on the removal of the false prophecy. Verse 1 portrays the cleansing from sin and impurity through a fountain opened up to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And once again, we refer we refer. We, we return to the reference to REF words. Return and reference. We return to the reference of on that day. Verses 1, verses 2, and verse 4. What day? What day will the promised fountain that affects cleansing from sin and impurity uh, that is associated with ritual cleansing depicted in the law, what day will those things, sin, which he mentions, human misconduct, and uncleanness or impurity, which are ritual terms, what day will those be cleansed? You see, the image of the fountain, I think that evokes thoughts of invigorating fresh water. Not, not something laying in a pool and still. And Jeremiah uses that idea of the fountain as something that is a portrayal of God. As a, a fountain or spring of living water. Living water that had been forsaken by Judah. Now listen to me. The gravity of this image I don't think can be overemphasized. So returning to John's Gospel, because I use the Old Testament to help me understand the New Testament. Returning to John's Gospel, the blood and the water that came flowing from Jesus' pierced side reminded Him of this passage in Zechariah 
of the fountain that cleanses even those who have pierced God. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He provided that cleansing from sin. So what about the next three verses? Verses 7 to 10. Well, here begins a new section of Zechariah's great last oracle, and the focus is abruptly shifted from the deceitful visions of the false prophets to the sufferings, to the striking of the Messiah. And so I think clearly, although there was a reference in the historical setting, clearly now I understand why John sees this as Christ's death being previewed. Those who truly trust the Messiah are not only purged of sin in their inner being, their heart, their conscience, and their mind, but also in their daily walk, being set apart. Now I'm going to wave my hand slowly. And I'm going to use the plural form of you, not the individual form of you. You are saints. That's what the Bible says. Paul begins his letter to the Christians at Corinth. You to the saints who are at Corinth. Was everybody there perfect? <laughs> Read Corinthians and you'll realize right away now. But we're saints because we have been set apart. We're saints because we have set ourselves apart. We have sanctified ourselves. And so in contrast to the false prophets just described, God's true shepherd is presented in verse 7 when He says, Awake, O sword! Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Who is the only one who we know of scripturally who stands beside God at the right hand of God? Jesus. Oh, sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. And you know what? Jesus quoted this verse. Matthew 26, verse 31, Jesus says, You all fall away because of me this night. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. You see, the wounds of the false prophets, they were self-inflicted. <laughs> But in verse 9, the wounds of our Savior are the engravings of God. This is one of the two aspects of the Messiah, of the Jesus' suffering and death, namely that it was inflicted upon Him because He was the offering for sin. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 10 and 11. But the Lord was pleased to crush Him, putting Him to grief. 
As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Yeah. Though the shepherd is struck, it is the means by which we are his sheep are sanctified. I don't know how many of you follow my little post that I do on Facebook. But I haven't gotten away from Friday. Good Friday. Oh, I love the empty tomb. Don't get me wrong. I think the resurrection and the empty tomb are, are powerful. But I think many times we have slid by Friday too quickly. And we have failed to realize what the cross really means in the depth of the understanding which it brings. Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. He was referring to the cross. The crucifixion. The enthronement of Jesus as our King. And yes, though the shepherd is struck, that's the means by which we are sanctified. And the little ones... Or the Lord's little flocks, by the way, in Acts at Antioch when they first called the followers of Jesus Christians, it was really derogatory. It was those little Christs who were running around. The little ones, the Lord's little flock, as it's called in Luke 12, are those who place their faith in the Messiah Redeemer. Undergo suffering? Yes, absolutely. Tribulation? Yes. Persecution? Absolutely. By the way, you can read all about it if you want in 1 Peter 4, John 15, John 16. In fact, John 15, 28 is a warning to that generation as well as to our generation. Not just some distant future period of tribulation. That is not in Revelation. I know a lot of people have taught that it is. But it's not there. I promise you. We are living in the last days. We are living in the days of persecution and tribulation. And the words that Jesus spoke can be understood as a, a discipline. As Christ suffered, so shall His disciples drink of the cup that He drank and be baptized with the baptism that He was baptized with. Or, not just discipline, but a promise that God would gather His scattered disciples together again. So with all this in mind, what's the challenge for today? Let me ask you, where's your focus? 
Is your focus on the mirror? Me, myself, I? What I want? All those horrible things that are being done to me? Oh, I just didn't get any sleep last night. You know how long a camel sleeps? I mean a giraffe. You know how long a giraffe sleeps on the average? 1.9 hours every 24. So the next time you feel like you didn't get any sleep, just think, oh, I'm better than that giraffe. I only got 1.9 hours. Self-indulgent. I want it all. I want it all. I want it all. And I want it now. Or is your focus on the cross? Because you see the the last half of the verse of our text reads they will call upon my name and I will answer them and I will say in contrast to Hosea see you've got to read Hosea to understand Zechariah they will say they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Will you call upon the name of the Lord so that you can hear? You are my people. not You are not my people. Remember how Hosea named one of his children? You are not my people. Prophetically, but we are and can be God's people. Let's pray. Father God,